0: Hello and welcome to Series 4, Episode 11 of Out with Susie Ruffle. Hello, I hope that you're having a good week. Do I say that every week? I feel like I do. But I genuinely mean it, I do hope you're having a good week. Um, I'm coming to you live from the tiny box room that I've made into a studio. I say box room, we know it's a cupboard. And as I'm sitting here, I've just sort of looked to my right and I've realised that there are some boxes, which I assume are Christmas presents, that my wife has hidden in here. But now I'm in here so I really want to open them but I'm not going to because I'm 35 and I really need to learn to behave like an adult um but yeah that's as ever I'm just sharing with you what is going through my head at the exact moment what do I need to say to you I need to say thank you to all of you that got in touch after last week's episode um lots of you enjoyed my fabulous chat with Michael Chakravarti who I love so much what a excellent episode that was uh really loved sharing Michael's story and I just think he's a wonderful wonderful man if you haven't listened to that one I highly recommend you go back Uh, if you're trying to get in touch with me at the moment you always can my email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. I'm also all over the Instagram I'm taking a bit of a Twitter break at the moment Uh, there was some hostility on there after the womanhood documentary came out so I'm not engaging with any of that because I don't have time for it I don't have time for mean people. So I'm just taking myself away. But if you want to get in touch with me, you can do on the email. And um, I'm really keen to hear more of your coming out stories. Uh, we're getting less of them at the moment, which is, uh, which is the first time it's happened since uh, the podcast started. So if you want to share your story with me and you want me to read it out on the show, I would love to please get in touch if you've been thinking oh i should do that i should do that maybe maybe this week maybe this week reach out because we've only got a few episodes left of this series and this one is a great one it's with uh, glim fossil i think you'll really enjoy it if you're not aware of him he is basically the party king of soho and east london and queer parties in general and i loved talking to him about how he's sort of been instrumental in creating london's queer night scene Uh, really interesting chat and a lovely bloke to boot so I really hope that you enjoy the episode before that as always we've got our listener emails and let's start here with one from Elsbeth dear Susie I will begin this email like almost everyone else thank you for your podcast every episode is filled with curiosity respect and tenderness I feel a real sense of community when I listen imagining all the other queers and allies listening with me Ah, Elsbeth I love that so much I'm a recently out and pretty proud bisexual person in their late 20s. I have found such solace from the stories of your guests and their lovely letters. I thought I couldn't be gay if I didn't feel it when I was an adolescent, but now I know that it's okay that I grew into it. I have a great number of LGBTQ friends and have been a vehement ally since I was a teenager but I felt like I couldn't be queer myself unless I was totally sure. I finally felt able to tell my partner of three years about my sexuality after listening to your podcast for days on end, feeling emboldened by this queer network. It went well and I was completely accepted, but I wasn't concerned about him. I knew that he was open-minded. It's how it felt to me. It felt very freeing. I have now added this time and place to Queering the Map, another revelation from this podcast. And I'm so happy to be fully embracing my LGBTQ plus family now. This is a new chapter in my life. And thanks again for soundtracking it. Kindest wishes. And as I said, that's from Elsbeth. Um, Thank you so much for your email, Elspeth. I'm so pleased that this um, podcast has been part of your journey. And uh, thank you so much for getting in touch with me. I love that idea of imagining all the other queers and allies listening. Um, I often think about that when I'm doing this little top and tail, and it blows me away the amount of people that are listening. And uh, I hope that you all know that I really appreciate every single one of you that takes the time to listen to these stories, whether you're part of the LGBTQIA family or whether you're part of our family because you're an ally. Um, the fact that you download this every week and listen to it is awesome. It's just brilliant to me, especially seeing as this was just a thing that I did in lockdown so that I um, had something to do and now it's become something uh, much more. And I'm really finding that from these tour shows. I've got the last one tonight, so if you're listening to this now, it's already happened, um, although although there are plans afoot to film it next year. So I will be calling out for all of you to come along to the filming. Um, but I, uh, I've i met lots of people that love the podcast, at tour shows and it's felt really special actually i want to give a little shout out to evelyn who came to the tour show in portsmouth on friday a couple of weeks ago and uh who had traveled all the way from germany to see the show because of the podcast which i was unbelievably moved by that someone would take the time and create a whole trip to the uk to work around my show and uh we met and we had a photo and then Um, some of my cousins took her for a drink to show her the nightlife of Portsmouth and she texted me the next day so we know that she didn't get too drunk (laughs) but thank you Evelyn that meant the world to me and I hope you had a good time with my cousins Um, but they, they do like a drink they do like a drink the last thing I saw was her going into a pub and then I looked through the window and she had a massive pint in her hand so I hope you had a good time right let's have another email hi Susie, i started listening to your podcast a few months ago when i was introduced to it by two of your listeners in greenland hello i didn't know i had listeners in greenland hello it's really great hearing the diverse range of guests you've had on and the listener emails and i found myself identifying with a lot of what's being said i'm 27 years old and i realized i was gay when i went to university and fell in love with one of my best friends at the time i completely buried this and refused to acknowledge it i had never had any gay representation growing up. Everyone around me in my family and friendship groups were straight and sexuality was never something we talked about. Looking back to when I was younger at school I now realised I had crushes on girls too but I never even really considered what that meant or the possibility that I could be gay. I also always remember like many others words like gay and lesbian being used as slurs which added to me feeling like it was not something that I could be. I was never interested in guys but I felt like being in a relationship with a guy was the done thing. After uni, I tried dating different guys as I was trying to convince myself that this is what I should be doing, but it didn't really feel right. And I was still in complete denial about my sexuality and I felt very lost. At the start of 2020, right before lockdown, perfect timing, I started the process of coming out to myself after a conversation with my sister quizzing me about how I hadn't found any nice guys on dating apps and then asking me about my best friend from uni. I guess sisters have a sixth sense. This was the start of acknowledging my sexuality to myself and a lot of guilt and shame and internalised homophobia I had. I struggled a lot mentally with trying to process this during lockdown and eventually came out to my close family and a few good friends as I thought this would help. While their reactions were positive, I still felt quite isolated and unable to talk to them about everything I was feeling. I didn't know any LGBTQIA people who I could talk to and who might have shared experiences fast forward to september this year when i went to greenland for nearly three months for work there i met a lesbian couple the ones that introduced me to this podcast and we have become good friends it's so validating to get to know them and they have helped me so much to feel like it's okay to be gay and to be comfortable with who i am now i'm back in the uk things already feel more positive i want to try and expand my circle of lgbtqia plus people and meet others who i can really be myself around keep up the great podcast it's been a real comfort to listen to and I'm coming to your show on Banbury on Friday and I'm really looking forward to it. And the writer of this email has asked to stay anonymous, but you know who you are. Also, I'm guessing the listeners in Greenland know who they are as well. Um, I loved this email. Thank you so much for sending it in. Um, it, sometimes it takes a while, doesn't it? I mean, like, you know, we've, we've all grown up in a homophobic world. Even, even younger people now growing up in a homophobic world, it's still, it's still different to be gay, it's brilliant to be gay or queer or however you identify, but it is different, and we're not in the majority. And yeah, I I understand those feelings of internalised homophobia. It's something that we've talked about a lot on this show, and hopefully by hearing people that are now comfortable with their sexuality talking about that might help you a little bit with your journey. And um, I also thought about this email the fact that the the lesbian couple in Greenland has made you feel so much more comfortable with who you are it's a real statement to all of us out there to remember to um, be there for for newly coming out people or even people that you know just don't have a network yet of queer friends and, and reminds us all how much just living an authentic life openly and in front of people and allowing people to join your friendship groups can be so validating for people around you what a great thing for us all to remember. Uh, thank you so much for your email. I'm not going to say your name, you know who you are and the Banbury show is tonight so I might meet you tonight. I hope that I do. Okay, let's get on to today's conversation with the brilliant Glenn Fussell. Today's guest is the reason I've had many, many great nights out and a few occasional hangovers. Glyn Fussell is the king of the UK night scene. Sink the Pink is the best, most inclusive night out I have ever been to. It is the largest LGBTQ plus collective and club night in the UK. Its dedication to diversity, creativity enjoys joys wows communities and audiences across the globe. And I have been one of them many, many times. They've also collaborated with the likes of Little Mix, Pink, Mel C, and Years and Years. But it doesn't stop there. Glyn is also the brains behind Mighty Hoopla, the UK's most inclusive and fabulous pop festival I've been to that and had an incredible time. I also want you to know that he's recently released a new podcast called We Can Be Heroes, which celebrates the power of being different, which is something that I absolutely love. What a blast to have him on the show today. Hello, Glynn.
1: Hi, I'm thrilled to be here. I've been a long time fan of yours.
0: Well, that's very kind of you to say. I've been, we sort of mentioned uh, just as we were beginning that I know a lot about stuff that you create, but I don't really Mm. know anything about you. And there's not lots on the internet or we met. In we met at New York Pride.
1: Oh my god, we did! We Do met you know at what? New York Pride. We did, because actually I was saying to my boyfriend earlier, I'm sure I've met Susie. I remember. Um yeah, was it at Times Square? Maybe. I and think it, it there was. was also at a
0: party in a rooftop place.
1: Oh, it Tom was and I. It, Yes, of course. I remember that. That was at the top of the new World Trade Center.
0: That's right.
1: God, don't we sound bougie.
0: Don't we sound bougie. Don't worry, we'll get into the nitty gritty shortly.
1: (laughs) We, We were there with Melanie C on tour.
0: Yeah, I mean, Mel C wasn't there when I was there, which is probably for the best because when I was once interviewed to Mel C, I was so starstruck that I became sort of 12 year old me and sort of went oh hi it's really yeah. nice to meet you you were really important to me growing up and I think she just went oh that's nice i get this all the time
1: uh, she does get it all the I time mean, especially from
0: lesbians right she must be absolutely it's, exhausted it's
1: really really interesting actually because i'm i'm a child of of the 90s and i grew up also with the Spice Girls but It's really different when you become friends with a Spice Girl because they stop being sporty Spice. They start just their Melanie. And so you sometimes forget and you're walking through the street with them and then you see people lose their shit. Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy frothing at the mouth.
0: Well, it's another (gasps) level to being, you know, I've got famous friends. But I mean, who really cares about comedians? People are like, oh, there's that person from that thing. But if it's like a Spice Girl...
1: They were superheroes, weren't they? They were superheroes of our generation, for sure.
0: 100%. So you mentioned childhood, you, being a child of the 90s. Where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in Bristol, inner mm-hmm. city Bristol, um, one of seven children.
0: Whereabouts are you placed? I'm second
1: youngest, second okay. youngest. And um, yeah, very working class family, very out there family, very loud. What um, by out there?
0: What do you mean? What does that look well, like? Well...
1: It was just, my house felt sometimes like one long party.
0: I mean, it makes perfect sense what you've done with your life.
1: I <laughs> oh my God, it really does. And also I was shy growing up. So, which no one ever believes, but I, growing up I was a very shy and I was a very um, anxious child, very anxious. And so there was always stuff going on. There was noise and my mum was a childminder and there'd be children everywhere and, and a lot of booze <laughs> and a lot of dancing. And I spent a lot of my time hiding And a lot of my time feeling like i was the eternal voyeur of that situation yeah really i didn't realize this is the craziest thing only until i started therapy recently where i'm like it makes perfect sense why i do what i do i'm almost recreating that space that i didn't feel comfortable in i'm getting a second go at it on my terms
0: so when you say you didn't feel comfortable was that because you wanted to watch or is it because you felt like you couldn't fully be yourself?
1: Yeah. I mean, I was a weird child, very eccentric, very theatrical. I'm sure you relate. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> uh, and also I was, inside of me, there was this glorious show pony, but I didn't have the confidence to, to do that on the outside. So I was had a massive imagination and I was a real dreamer. I was always that, you know, my mum thought I was a bit mad, I think. I would always be that child that would be sat in the back garden just talking to a tree <laughs> in deep conversation. And let me tell you, that tree spoke back.
0: Hey, listen, we can all learn a lot from the trees. We can all learn exactly. a lot. Exactly.
1: And I and I was just always dreaming, always away my mum would call it away with the fairies. And so yeah. And then I I think over time you realise that's not going to work for you when you turn into a teenager I'm going to have to almost fake it so luckily I had all these brothers and sisters that were larger than life and loud and boisterous and leery and I acted that out until I became it I guess and then slowly merged those two things merged that dreaming personality with the kind of tornado that you see before you now
0: that makes perfect sense yeah uh, can you just tell me what it says on your mug? You've just had a sip of tea.
1: It says regional slag. I thought it said that. Because <laughs> <laughs> I am a regional slag. <laughs> but the thing is, 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 I left Bristol really young. I left when I was 18 because I just needed to get away. I, I ran, honestly ran away because I needed to come out.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: also I just, I needed more. I always just have this um, reoccurring fantasy that one day... Brendan and Brenda from Beverly Hills, no, no, two would would roll up to my two up, two down in Bristol and be like, you're the third, we're actually triplets. And then they would adopt me and I would move to Beverly Hills. (laughs) That didn't happen. Still waiting. You're still waiting. But yeah, it's funny actually, as I got older, I'm so connected now to my upbringing. You know, you spend so long, don't you, running away from it, and mm. now I'm so proud to be a re- total regional slag. <laughs> I'm, I'm so proud of that, and proud of how you know where I come from and and all that hardship at times, actually, and trauma that I went through. It's good. It gave me a really thick skin, and it made me resilient. It made me a cockroach, actually. How, what do you mean by cockroach? Well, you know, there's that saying, isn't there, that if there was a nuclear disaster, the only three things left would be drag queens, cockroaches and share. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm two of those things. So <laughs> so Amazing. you don't need a Susie, you don't need a bunker. You just kind of saddle up come near to, me and I, I you will take, I'll take you to Nirvana. Yeah.
0: So you said you needed to run away. Uh, did you say at 18 you ran away? I ran away
1: at 18. The minute I turned 18, I... So yeah. what
0: did secondary school look? Because, you know,
1: mm. I, I sort of
0: assumed that you might have been someone that might have been because you're so, I mean, so comfortable in your skin. Obviously, we're, you know, I feel like we're probably a similar age. But, and I'm comfortable in my skin now. I definitely didn't come out when I was at school. But do you think people were picking up on your queerness or were they, mm. or was it tough? Or did you just manage to sort of put on that armour that you were talking about and get through it?
1: I just got through it. Mm. I mean, I was really lucky that I went to that, that school, that school in Bristol, in a city, and it was where all the kids got sent as the last chance saloon. If they'd been suspended or expelled, they would go oh. to my school. So my anxiety going into that—I remember the summer holidays prior to going there it was peak. It was—it was right up there. But my big sister and my big brother had a real reputation of being the rough, the yard kids. They were the yard kids. Right. So I remember thinking, being really crippled with fear about that, and then all of all of a sudden I which is so insane, really, at the age of 11, that I had this out-of-body moment where I went, oh, I could pretend I'm a hard kid. And so I just wore that. Obviously, that didn't last that long. People figured it out. But by then, I was already friends with all the hard kids, you know? Mm -hmm. Because they find each other, don't they?
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: And it was was some... (sighs) It's funny, actually, because I realised recently, as I'm getting very... As I dip into my past, especially my childhood, I realized senior school, I don't remember a great deal of it. I don't remember people that were in my class. And I think it's because I was just coping. Mm -hmm. I was daily, from day to day, I was just navigating trauma. I was having to figure it out every single day so that I could just get through that day, come out the other side, not as a victim, Mm -hmm. which is fucking hard you know really really hard and I I somehow managed to do it but it didn't leave enough that much time for for memories apparently because I don't remember a great deal I remember holidays with my family I remember things at home with my mum and dad but I don't remember anything about school five years just don't remember a thing isn't that weird
0: do you think that's a way of your brain sort of was protecting you somehow?
1: I think so. I think, yeah. And I definitely became even more of a dreamer, even more. And I, I became, because I knew I was gay from really young, even before I knew what the word gay was. Because, you know, I, when I was figuring those things out was, you know, I was born in 1980. So there were no gays really other than those large and life gays you saw on TV that I didn't have any representation. And they usually weren't out. Or you we grew up in you know I grew up around the time of section 28, of course. Then through the AIDS you know the AIDS pandemic that so, so not only that, not only are you feeling this level of shame about being gay, you're being shame about just existing in the world that you've been born into. but even worse than that you feel like when you finally do come out the other side and you can explore your sexual and your sexual identity or your just your identity full stop, you'll die of AIDS. You know, it's it's only recently I've really started to think about the the level of a burden that you that you, that's carried on you as a child that no one else can understand unless you're queer or unless you're mm. it's heavy. That is heavy stuff. And it definitely affected me. I I I, I just remember thinking to myself, I've just gotta get through this. I've got to get through this, I've got to come out the other side. And I was a bit of a hustler. I was always working. I was always filling my time because also Mm. that's another way that if I had jobs, I didn't have to go out and hang around on the streets. So I had like four paper rounds. I was picking up fish guts in the market on a Sunday. That's glamorous. And (laughs) I was doing anything I could do. I was scamming neighbors and doing like bingo raffle ticket stuff and then giving away I remember once giving away an ornament that my mum got given and the winner was actually the neighbour that gave it to my mum. So that didn't work out so well. And so I was always doing things like that. And then when I got to about 16, I thought, right, just get every job, every job. I was working on weekends. I was working in a factory on the weekdays, saving money to just get out.
0: And so where did you come to?
1: Well, and then I turned 18 and I moved to Australia as far away as possible. Really? Really? And my world completely changed, actually. I went there and I... I've. Was... Why Australia? Well, so my dad's ex-wife had moved there. And so one of my dad's, one of my half-sisters was there. Uh-huh. And it was the only person I knew that lived in a different country. It was really like that. If She could have lived in Kazakhstan and I would have probably gone. It was just to get out of the, the space that I was in. I went there and I kind of did my thing for a while you know did the tourist stuff but i didn't really know what to do with my time just walk around the streets also i didn't really know where you would meet other people like me i remember just walking through the city center going if there's a gay they'll find me i'm here now here i am <laughs>
0: what part of australia were you in i
1: was in perth the most isolated city in right, world yeah
0: yeah it's quite isolated
1: <laughs> And I was terribly homesick. I remember that. And then after about three months, I think it was, I thought, I've, well, God, I've got no money left. Mm. I, don't, I don't have any friends. What am I going to do? And I just thought, I'm going to get a job. And I got a job um, in a coffee shop that just so happened to be a gay coffee shop. And it was run by someone that changed my life, an old flamboyant Quentin Crisp style queen called Auntie Donald, who became the first ever gay person that I knew really. Um, and what a gay person to know. He taught me about culture and he taught me that gayness wasn't enough, you know, that you needed to explore the culture. And, and, and I just was a sponge to everything he said and he really changed my life. And I've lost touch with him and I think about it all the time. And yeah, it's, um, and honestly, I've never looked back from that moment really.
0: Do you remember that feeling of seeing someone that was gay and happy?
1: Oh, gosh. Well, you didn't, did you? I didn't growing up. It was always, mm. if you were gay, you were a victim. If you were gay, you were dying. If you were gay, you were a joke. Those mm-hmm. were the three narratives that were that peddled on TV. And th- here's the really weird thing. I kind of had this deep-rooted self-confidence. And I knew that I I didn't quite know how to action it, but I knew it was there. I knew there'd be a moment where I would just explode. And it really was about finding... Because I'm be honest, even with Donald, <laughs> he's deeply troubled, flamboyant, mm. amazing, great character. But he'd grown up being gay in the '60s in Australia. In Australia and Perth, yeah, right. And was was you know had a lot of stuff. I guess it was not really until meeting my first boyfriend I found someone that was very out, gay, and happy. And and yeah, and then I think it's. It's taken me a long, it's a really t- difficult and I talk about this a lot actually. I, when I came out as gay, I thought it was gonna be that Dorothy moment. You know, I was gonna click my heels and everything would be great. Mm-hmm. I am gay. Every single question that I'd ever had would be answered. And it just wasn't like that. And I've spent my life coming out several times. And I think we do that as queer people a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. I came out as gay. And then I realized I wasn't the gay guy that I, saw when I went to these clubs then I moved to London and I couldn't find a scene that was for me and it was really until I started to sink the pink until Mm. I created my own scene I found other people that maybe were feeling a certain way too that you know just felt underrepresented not only within the world but within Mm. our own scene quote-unquote scene yeah, because, you know, I always used to be, I used to tell people, I'm such a terrible gay. I'm such a, I'm so, I'd be such but a bad.
0: How, how do you mean, like when you say that, when you say there was no one like okay. you in the club, how were you looking or feeling Well, I different? always used
1: to feel more more akin to being a lesbian. Put it that way. <laughs> Welcome to the club. Yes. I'm quite vanilla. <laughs> <laughs> what Richard. are you
0: saying about lesbians? How no, are you no. saying that we're vanilla? <laughs> Careful now. I'm not whole new
1: What I mean is I'm not, I'm not, I'm not I'm quite straight traditional straight down the line with relationships I'm Mm -hmm. very monogamous I'm also by the way not set sometimes I wish I was a little bit more fruity and free but I'm just not it's just not for me and I'm not very uh, even though I'm a show off is a really weird one I'm not about like taking my body off, the uh, the very notion of being sexy makes me want to vomit in a shoe, you know. I sometimes think that within, when you go to gay clubs, there's a, actually quite a level of seriousness to it. You know, everyone's taking themselves very seriously. Whereas I always eternally, when I'm in a gay club, all I hear in my brain is digga din in digga digga dee in digga 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 dig dig ga ding And I'm like literally running around going, oh! <laughs> you know, just being being an idiot. I feel yeah, I, look. I think sometimes it's just about finding your people, mm. and also, yeah, I don't want to be told that I have to be one thing. That's totally. not why I came out as gay. And I think that's for some. That when I came out, and especially when I was in London, came to London thinking that everything was going to be answered for me, but I found all I found was these little micro tribes, these little mm-hmm. scenes, and they were a bit like, well, you don't look like us, so you can't be us. And I felt very misunderstood and very. I felt very disillusioned by all and I'm like Mm. I can be all of those things and this and I can put on a dress and I can not put on a dress and I can do whatever the fuck I want because Mm. I've been through enough we've all been through enough we can actually just explore all of this and we can do it whilst really liking each other having respect for each other and growing together and having conversation.
0: I think that's really important it's something that Tom and I, Alan, and I sort of spoke about in his episode a little bit as well, and have spoken about, because obviously we're a gay guy and a lesbian, we're really, really good friends. And yet it seems that that sort of relationship isn't something that's around a lot of people you don't see that on telly or you don't see that mm. and I think that's the thing that unfortunately sometimes our communities can be sort of chopped into well you're this and then not just sort of who you want to sleep with also like what kind of gay are you are you a muscle boy yes. are you uh you know are you a very butch lesbian or are you you know and I think that there's the blurring of it is actually what community should look like and I've hated that when I've gone to like like my girlfriends into what I refer to as bang bang music she likes places like fire where all the boys yeah I know where all the boys take off their tops and wear like leather harnesses and things and we've been I've been to some of those nights with her and it does seem like the gay men look at you like why are you here and you kind of want to be like hey we've all come out we've all been through stuff can we just can't I just be here as well and I know that like Alice has had scenarios where she was like at madrid pride and she went to a, a bang bang club that's not sex by the way that's the music in case anyone's wondering like a boom 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 music club and and a gay guy was like why are you here and she was like oh i'm a lesbian i've come for pride and he was like this is a this is for men this is for gay men you, you shouldn't be here and it was like
1: i hate that oh why I are you doing that. that i just think that the world is putting enough labels on us we shouldn't be doing it on each other
0: no, but and I like did, everyone should be welcome. Like, I and come I mean, in, I in. mean that
1: that is the sort of tagline of Sink the Pink. Everybody's mm-hmm. welcome. Everybody's welcome. Everybody's celebrated. Yeah, and and that was a, that was something that was from the beginning, and I still stand by that. And you know the weird thing with Sink the Pink is that we're, gosh, oh my god, this is mad. Next year it'll be fifteen years we've been doing it. Isn't that mad? Fifteen years, and I don't know if there's any other club nights really that've been going that long and i think that is down to the people that come because Mm. if you look at the scene now where a lot of these micro tribes have sort of diminished somewhat yeah and think the pink facilitates them all so the bigger we've got we see the muscle boys we see big groups of lesbians we see drag queens we see Mm. gender non-conforming people body positive people none of it matters. We're all just mm. humans, aren't we? And yeah. We're all just trying to unite together through a uh, mutual hardship. Yeah. And and that's the joy of it. And I think that's why we're still here and still thriving.
0: And so tell me about the first Think the Pink. Where was it? Where did you do it? <laughs> uh, it, was-
1: it was the 8th of August, 2008. And it was in a bar in Islington that was essentially looked like Heathrow Terminal 5 corridor. And, Ooh, and, it was, it, and it was called The Green and it was actually billed on their website as London's premier middle-class gay bar. <laughs> 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 so obviously what that meant is they served kind of a, a bougie volivant on a woodblock.
0: Yeah, sure,
1: sure, and, a few cocktails, and, sure. And and you would queue for 25 minutes and get a cocktail that was 95% ice. Yeah. So, but we knew the manager and me and Amy, who I started to the paint with, who's my best friend, we really, we didn't know anyone, but we knew that we wanted to start this night and we wanted to do it for ourselves, right? That's where it started. It was born out of a frustration that we just, we almost reached a point where we were so disillusioned with everything that was going on that we thought, what we got to lose fuck it let's mm-hmm. just do it and we started because we knew the manager and he gave us a shot he said what do you want to call it we we're like i am so sink the pink there's an acdc record back in the day my dad used to collect records and i always remember i'd flick through the records i've always been really obsessed by record sleeves and artwork and just in mm-hmm. general and I'm, I'm like obsessed about I love data. I love stupid facts. So I love to know, like, who the sound engineer on a record was. So I (laughs) weird. Like I said, I had a lot of time on my hands growing up. But this one record was this ACDC record. And it was a a porn star with her legs around her head, completely naked. And she just had a star on her vagina that said, Sick the Pink. And I just remember thinking, oh, that's such a good name for something. I don't know what became the club night. But he wanted to call it Fry Gay.
0: I'm so really you, pleased you yeah, worked with. The so you can think. see what
1: you can see what we were up against. He get, gives us the night. The first night we were going to be paid fifty pounds and drinks tickets. Um, well, I can drink like a fish, so we ended up having a, a bar tab at the end of the night. And the first one, I think we had thirty two people come, and I think half of them were shipped in from Bristol. And yeah, I mean, we thought it was the biggest success ever. I think the the thing was, it tapped into this own personal joy in us. And we just went, we can't feel any other way than this. And we mm. just kept chasing that feeling really. And then, you know, fast forward, we're about to do Wembley. <laughs> it's it's is, amazing. It's insane. Like the really, the greatest thing for me about the pandemic, and there, is, there are very few great things, is that it made me, feel very proud of what *Sing The Pink has achieved and made me very nostalgic Mm. and made me go, wow. If if I never did anything else in my life, this is quite a thing, you know? It's given so many people a space. And not a thing for myself, because like you said, I probably about five years ago, I realized that my ego was getting carried away with itself and I was on stage and I was doing everything and I thought, right, stop, just stop. You're mid thirties now. I was looking out in the crowd and everyone was probably 10 years younger than me. And I thought, why are you doing this? Give it up, pass the baton on. And so I kind of actually intentionally put myself in the, in the background because I thought, if we want this to carry on, we have to remember what it was there. And it's to give people a space that need it. I don't need it in that way anymore. My mm. ego needs it. So I pulled myself away. That was very hard. <laughs> It's very hard but I did it and it was the best thing I did. But that's why it's continued and that's why I think you see these young new people come. But yeah, I feel I feel just so I feel pr- you know I feel proud of giving people memories. Mm. I think that isn't that why you move to a city, you want to create memories.
0: Oh, I've got some great memories of sink the pink at Bethnal Green Working Men's Club.
1: I didn't know you used to come. Yeah. I think that look that was, a, that was a changing moment for us, that that place.
0: I remember being there, and it was always funny because it would be like the sort of gayest, most like crazy stuff was happening on stage. I remember wearing like a suit and a tie, which is something I would, and like, I do it all the time now, but I had to be feeling very confident to do that. I had to, be, yeah. I had to be having a very confident day to go really androgynous. And it would have been with my first girlfriend who of course we're lesbians, is now one of my best friends. Mm-hmm. and um and I remember us going and being like this is incredible queuing like for ages around the block
1: in a working men's club and insane. the thing that
0: I loved about it was that it was so crazy on, not crazy but it was so like flamboyant and wonderful on stage and then you'd go to the bar and it would be like 65 year old Marjorie
1: yeah <laughs> Steph was, John Julie
0: who was just there every who who went there every night when yeah. you know it didn't matter and it was just like those clashings of those worlds, and like I've, I have like a, you know, my my family sort of like had pubs, and we're sort of, I'm sort of like of working class stock, I guess, and yeah, that sort of blurring of those two worlds felt really normal for me. I was like, yeah, this makes sense. Me I too. Love it.
1: it made complete sense. I mean, I grew up. I used to be a what we call in Bristol a sticker upper. Which is essentially at the local working men's club, when people are playing Skittles, I used to have to put all the pins back up in between. I used to get paid in crisps. Woo! (laughs) So I grew up in in working men's clubs. So that was normal for me. And actually it was, I think everything, every space that we put Sink the Pink into before that, we were trying to be something we weren't. We were in art galleries or we were in mm. conventional gay spaces. The minute you're honest and you go, this is actually a space that is me and the night is here because of me and because of Amy. And so once we lift that up and we're honest about it, it was. there's no coincidence actually that that thrived
0: mm. at that point
1: in time. And it was such an insane time. I mean, it was so sad that we had to leave, but there were people breaking in. I mean, it was, it was chaos and it was a hard thing to run
0: I remember frequently not being able to get tickets like I wish I'd known you then yeah like it used to be so hard to get a ticket yeah and like half your friendship group would get one and then like someone else hadn't got one and you'd be like ringing around people being like has anyone got a spare ticket do you know anyone that knows anyone that's got a spare ticket which is just like amazing that you know a handful of years before it was almost fry gay.
1: Yeah, exactly. That was really the the moment where, it was funny actually, because that was also the moment that I was just, I got to a point where I put so much into it for five years and I was, let's just say that I was consuming everything that comes with clubbing. Sure. And I got myself just, I, I was burnt. And actually at one point, I think five years, six years in, I, I'm like, I can't do this anymore. I'm so glad, I'm so glad that, Amy cried solidly for five days until we sort of decided not to, because actually, in retrospect, that wasn't my decision to make. I think once you once you're just steering a ship, you have to just mm. make sure that you do enough to keep steering it, but you're not, you know, partying on the deck and doing <laughs> doing to keel off someone's tits. As much as I want to, Susie. I just can't I, do sorry, that anymore. I'll-
0: I'll move the shot glass. Uh, Mine aren't aren't big enough to really hold anything up. (laughs) (laughs) Give it a try. How did you get over that burnout then or that like clubbing fatigue?
1: Well, it's constant. That, That is constant. It comes in different forms, I think.
0: How many nights a week were you like working?
1: Yeah, a lot. When we got to that point at Bethnal Green, I was... I was doing that, but then I was also, you're not really earning enough money. So you just have to pick, it's insane. You know, I was doing the door in a Mayfair club. And so I was out every night and I was Mm. having fun every single night. And Amy's the complete opposite. So she's sensible and uh, I mean, she's wild, if that makes sense, just in day-to-day life, but she's sensible in that she knows when to go home. She knows when to have sleep. Whereas I became the Pied Piper of queers in London and, and just, yeah, the, a sort of disco tornado. Um, <laughs> and I just got to a point where I knew it was like, it was take myself away or stop everything. The taking myself away felt like a, a, a better option. So I I went away. I, I think we just had a big sink the pink, you know. and then And then I went to a very remote island in Vietnam and just was very still for I think about six weeks came back and was a sober Susie well not you know what I mean not me but, uh, yeah, I've never been yeah. a sober Susie no no. <laughs> I mean I've, I've I've since not been a sober Susie but what I needed sure. to I needed to you check to detox and I needed to check in and know that I could do everything without stuff if that makes sense so yeah I think I did about ten months ten months and then I reintroduced drinking and stuff into my life and um Yeah, and then I think the craziest thing is what I achieved. I came back with this established night and then all of a sudden I had complete clarity on what I was doing. And then I set up all my businesses and not just me, but lots of people. And and that that was that. And then we were off. We were off.
0: And when you say like you, like all the extra stuff that you needed in order to sort of be that disco tornado, do you think that that was... Like is that when you really, you said right at the beginning of the chat that like it took you quite a long time to get that like show pony but also that like little boy that was talking to trees to yeah. like merge those two people. Was it when you had to take away all the booze that you sort of found that or was it was it before then or was it, did you need the booze and the stuff to be like, oh, I can do this, I am this person?
1: I needed a mask, you know, again, mm-hmm. I really only started performing when I – dressed up and put on mm-hmm. a and create, and create a character because back then I was Glynphemous, you see. <laughs> so it was about creating a larger life alter ego that facilitated everything that I couldn't, just Um, Because as Glynfussell, I'm good at occupying day-to-day spaces. I'm good at going to meetings. I'm good at all of that stuff. I'm great at all of that stuff. But I'm not great at walking into a club and dancing and being like, Look at me. I'm just not. Mm. I need to be that extra character. Turns out it doesn't matter anymore because I'm 41 years old. I'm very comfortable in my day-to-day life and my position is my position. I don't need to change. If, I, if I'm if i doing my festival, if I'm doing Sink the Pink or if I'm just going to an event, I don't need to be in the middle of the dance floor. That's just not where I'm going to be and I've accepted that. I can I can just go back to being that voyeur that mm-hmm. I was as a child, but the difference is now I like myself a lot more and I know that I, I'm not crippled with anxiety when I walk into a room, that's the difference. Mm. So it's kind of like leveled out, but it's taken me a long time.
0: And do you think that anxious child would be sort of surprised that you are now like this leader within the queer community?
1: No. Because it I, feels like
0: that's what you, you don't think you would be surprised. No. Go on.
1: Because I always had, even though I was this anxious, on the outside, even though I was this anxious, really nervous, shy child, I knew that I was supposed to do big things. And I knew that I was supposed to do something really big within my community. I always knew that. And it was such a weird one for me because that's what, where a lot of the frustration came from at going out and discovering London because I I can remember thinking, well, where am I supposed to be within this? Mm. But I just knew that I've always known, I I don't know if I've ever said this publicly, but I feel like I'm here to to move things forward in a way and change things. And I'm saying that in a very practical way, not in a egotistical way. I just feel as if my purpose And purpose is a little ego driven, but but my purpose is that I'm supposed to make change. I still don't really know how. I feel like if I just keep trying and pushing forward in the stuff that I do and my intention is great, you just naturally do make change.
0: I feel like you've done that in the the UK nightlife scene. I mean, I'm sure you've done it in other places as well. I know you've done stuff all over the world, but... Like I can If I think about like You know the first Lesbian bar that I went to Which would have been Candy Bar I remember Uh, walking in there And not feeling at all Like I was any of them Like I walked in Everyone like turned And looked at the door No one was like hi welcome <laughs> like I wanted like you know I'm a chatty Cathy yeah. and I like to be able to talk to people and not to be like oh I'm hitting on someone's girlfriend or something I'm just like oh what they, oh that looks nice what drink are you having same. you know same. I just like talking to people you know you saying that you're like a lesbian I've always felt like I'm kind of a bit like a gay guy and <laughs> <that> I'm like <laughs> a little bit camp sometimes but you know I feel like you've created that change in that like I remember the first time I went to sink the pink and I remember being like well the fact that I can still remember it and the amount of club nights I've been to over the you know I think like creating that space where you're like oh I can dance in here and I can be gay in here and I can be sort of who I want to be in here and also everyone else no one's going to be rude to me and no one's going to be like even the really hot people aren't being rude (laughs) yeah there
1: you go yeah
0: (laughs) whereas you know there's I feel like there it can feel like there's a hierarchy in queer circles you know and I've you know, I can only make assumptions about what it's like for gay men. But I certainly think for, like, gay girls, I yeah, I definitely felt like I wasn't one of the cool people. And I didn't have, I mean, I've got a couple of tattoos now, but I didn't have all the tats. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have, and I wasn't very good at pool. <laughs> 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 but, I, you know, I, I, and I feel like that's what Sync the Pink is, in that you, I could go there with a load of gay friends. I could also take straight friends there. I could probably take my mum.
1: And she'd still have a really good time. My mum's been several times. My mum loves it. Yeah, my mum loves it. Yeah, because that was it. I mean, it's not... I've never wanted our community to live in the underground. I think that's the Mm. thing. It's about crossing over into the mainstream and seeing us at our best and our most bright and wonderful, seeing us as leaders Mm. rather than uh, followers or victims. And I just think that we've done that through Sync the Pink and through Mighty Hoopla, through mm-hmm. these spaces. But actually the, the biggest change will come when we don't need to create these spaces, when these spaces yes. are everywhere we go. And also I'm always fully aware that I live a wonderful life in London. And I. I so for me, it's about right, well how do I use that privilege to create a virtual space or to create uh, just a space in someone's head or life that makes them feel more comfortable. So that's really, I think, the next thing is figuring out how that little kid that lives in Aberdeen can grow up not feeling underrepresented. Like I didn't have, like you didn't have. I think yeah, that's the Yeah, well, I mean, it's step. the
0: whole reason this podcast exists. I'm mm. basically making it for 14-year-old me. Like, yeah. she'll never hear it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. She's now
0: 35. But I know that I would have been a lot less sad. Yeah. If I had listened to conversations like this.
1: Exactly, it.
0: And a lot less anxious.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: And was your anxiety linked to your queerness, do you think?
1: Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. I would have never acknowledged that, really. Because I also used to have that, I'm not a victim, I'm amazing. But actually, <laughs> shut up. You. But well, you don't
0: need to be, a you're just living in a homophobic world.
1: <laughs> yeah. Like you're
0: just existing. <laughs>
1: I skipped the years that everybody else that's straight growing up around me was out exploring their identity in a playground or in in the local bowling alley or you know getting fingered at at the local park (laughs) i wish Um, (laughs) whilst they were doing that most of us queer kids were living inwardly and having to create imaginary um spaces or thinking about what would be and i think that that creates a level of anxiety and trauma. Of course it's bound to. Hmm. So yeah, that, it does come from that. And then when we come out, we normally come out with gusto, absolute gusto. And we're chucked into a, a club land that doesn't, that feels a bit hostile. And, yeah. and And so we're already vulnerable and anxious and then we're put into this space. So we're missing some links there, I think. That We're missing some links of, of actually being there for our community, when they're really needed.
0: Mm, I 100% agree. Mm. Do you still like live in that slightly imagination world?
1: Oh God, yes. I think if you are ambitious and you're a dreamer and you're creative, the minute that world, that space that you created, because that space stays the same by the way. I don't know if you feel the same. Like the way that I create, the way that my brain uses its creative juices is exactly the same. If I didn't have that, then I think I might as well just go and be an accountant. Although, <laughs> although if I did that, I would fail miserably. But my point is that I'm kind of in many ways grateful that I had that time and that space to explore. When I wasn't exploring my identity, I was exploring creativity, imagination, um, endless possibilities dream landscapes all of that stuff and and i'm just so lucky that actually <laughs> my life is now about making those a reality for myself and others and i think yeah i that's something i can never switch off in my brain i'm sort of the king of the cheerleaders now i think i any i and mean, anything can happen and i'm someone that runs into fear i get off on that so if someone says no they'd never do that or that would never happen I'm like you watch me here we go
0: <laughs> I really get off on that I love that
1: because everything's just in our own heads or I, what have we, no one's got anything to lose just and I feel like sometimes I'm I'm making up for lost time and and also I'm that kid that no one expected anything of so I'm like I'm gonna creep in around the back literally <laughs> 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 and I'm gonna surprise you all and I'm gonna wow you all
0: I love that. I'm going to ask you the final question I ask absolutely everyone on the podcast. Let's think about the boy that's like picking up fish guts at the Saturday market. Mm. If you could pick up a phone or if it's, you know, we get a lot of people listening to this podcast. We actually get people of all ages who are just coming out. I received an amazing email from a guy a little while ago who was in his 60s who'd just come out. So it's not something that only happens to young people. But if you could reach out and say something to either that version of yourself or someone that's listening that's not out yet and is maybe feeling like they're not quite sure where their place is in the world, what would you say?
1: I would say that at times you'll feel that, I'm gonna say what I would say to myself actually, because- Mm -hmm. Go for it. I was at the lowest of the low. So I'm gonna say that you've got to find whatever fire is burning in you and it will be a very dim little spark at the beginning and you've got to focus on that and try and encourage that fire because if you do that and people will always try and put that fire out trust me because anything that's brilliant and different and wonderful people will always try and squash but you've got to encourage yourself to keep fanning that fire until the fire is an absolute volcano of fabulosity (laughs) and before you know it it's wiping out towns all around you and you just listen to your instincts have faith in your own uniqueness you know because actually again uniqueness will always be shot down and actually it's the one thing that will become your superpower
0: yeah 100% I have loved this conversation thank you me too it's
1: been fascinating I love you Susie Ruffle.
0: oh I love you we need to like meet up in real life
1: yes you should come to Mighty Hoopla
0: Yeah, well, yeah, I should. Oh, I loved that conversation. I really hope you did too. You can find out all about uh, Mighty Hoopla and the different nights that Glynn organises online. Please do. They're an awful lot of fun, if that's your bag. I've had some great nights out there. Um, We've got a couple more episodes coming up in the series, maybe three, if I can squeeze in another uh, conversation. I'm hoping that I'll be able to, um, but there'll be two or three Uh, and then then we might have a little break in the new year Um, I really hope that you've enjoyed this conversation I really hope that you're enjoying the series if you do you can always rate and subscribe that does really help with uh, getting sponsorship which is really helpful with keeping the podcast going and if you want to email in please do the email is hello at with I hope that you have a really good week and I'll speak to you next week okay bye-bye